This afternoon I proclaim to you God's word as the church confesses it and summarizes it in Lord's Day 40 concerning the sixth commandment. Lord's Day 40 of the Heidelberg Catechism. Read that together. Here we confess. What does God require in the sixth commandment? I am not to dishonor, hate, injure, or kill my neighbor by thoughts, words, or gestures, and much less by deeds, whether personally or through another. Rather, I am to put away all desire of revenge. Moreover, I am not to harm or recklessly endanger myself. Therefore, also the government bears the sword to prevent murder. But does this commandment speak only of killing? By forbidding murder, God teaches us that he hates the root of murder, such as envy, hatred, anger, and desire of revenge, and that he regards all these as murder. Is it enough, then, that we do not kill our neighbor in any such way? No. When God condemns envy, hatred, and anger, he commands us to love our neighbor as ourselves, to show patience, peace, gentleness, mercy, and friendliness toward him, to protect him from harm as much as we can, and to do good even to our enemies. After the proclamation of God's word, we will respond by singing together from Psalm 133, stanzas 1 and 2. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, the sixth commandment is very short. In English, it's just four words, you shall not murder. And in the original Hebrew, it's even shorter. It's just two words, don't murder. It seems like a pretty straightforward command, doesn't it? It does not just prohibit all killing, but speaks clearly to us about murder, the unlawful taking of a human life. And that includes things like assassination, killing for the sake of revenge, genocide, euthanasia, abortion, and suicide. This command also addresses other forms of violence against people, things like child abuse, spousal abuse, slavery, the exploitation of the poor and the needy, the underprivileged. But this command, brothers and sisters, is much more far-reaching than that. With this command, God is not simply forbidding murder, but he commands us to love our neighbor as ourself. He commands us to love life. And that's because this command addresses us as God's people. The Lord wants us to love our neighbor from hearts that have been changed by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so to understand the full intent of this command, we have to focus on what is really the root of murder. The Lord doesn't just hate physical violence, but he hates the root of murder, such as envy, hatred, and anger. And that is because our God is the God of life. In the sixth commandment, the Lord then teaches us that he is the God of life. And that's the theme for the sermon. The Lord our God is the God of life. We will consider, first of all, the root of murder, and secondly, the way of life. So when we consider what the root of murder is, it becomes obvious pretty quickly that Lord's Day 6, or, or the sixth commandment teaches us 
that it, that it really deals with our attitude towards our neighbor and the life of our neighbor. The positive opposite of envy, hatred, and anger is that we love our neighbor as ourselves. And this calls for an attitude of patience and peace and mercy and kindness. We must seek the good of our neighbor. And so we have to understand very well that the Sixth Commandment has everything to do with, with how we treat people whose very lives touch our own. Now, it's fairly easy for us to perhaps deceive ourselves into thinking that we're, we're pretty good neighbors. After all, we haven't pulled a trigger to kill someone. And when you are in church, for example, you might be moved with compassion for the needy, Perhaps there's a special collection for the homeless, and then you put in some extra money in the collection bag. But at the same time, if one of those miserable, and you would run across one of those homeless people, one of them actually crossed your path, you you might wish that you could avoid them. And that's murder. You see, the spiritual root of murder is is hatred, and the, the catechism is is right about this, and the Bible's clear on this. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. 1 John chapter 3. And that same chapter continues, we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because he saw that his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. And the Lord Jesus implied this very same thing with what he taught about murder in Matthew 5. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. I'm quoting from the ESV. I realize that's a little bit different than the Bible that you're used to. Jesus begins by saying... But I say to you, and in this way, he confirms everything that the Old Testament teaches about murder. But at the same time, he's filling out the meaning of this commandment. He adds a depth to its meaning that the Jews and the Pharisees of his day didn't really understand. What was implicit in the Old Testament, Jesus is making explicit here. He's saying, I'm going to the very heart of this commandment, the heart of the law, to show you how you can live out the deepest meaning of the law. Now, the Pharisees taught that whoever murders will be in danger of judgment, and they were technically correct. The sixth commandment says, you shall not murder. And in Numbers 35, we read that a a killer must stand before the elders of the people to receive judgment. But Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. But the Pharisees were only concerned with keeping the letter of the law. But Jesus teaches us that we need to keep the spirit of the law. And in doing so, Jesus moves from the fruit of murder to the root of murder. He insists that we are all guilty of murder because... At one time or another, we have all been angry in thought, word, deed, action, in attitude. 
In other words, just because you don't have a gun or a knife in your hand, that doesn't mean that the Lord is impressed with you. On the contrary, Jesus teaches that since God looks into the heart, unrighteous anger makes you liable to God's judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Have you ever been angry with someone in thought, in word, in attitude? Jesus says, then you deserve to go to hell. Brothers and sisters, boys and girls, where would we be if God had made had not made salvation available to all those who come to him in faith. If Jesus had not paid for your sin with his death, you would spend eternity in hell, and not just for murder, but simply for insulting your classmates by destroying somebody with a dirty look, by giving your spouse the silent treatment. Where would we be if it were not for God's grace in Jesus Christ and for His mercy? To really understand this, let's take a closer look at what Jesus says here in Matthew 5. Matthew 5, verse 22. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. Now the word, some translations use insult for the word raka, but that, that word even sounds, sounds wicked when you say it, doesn't it? Raka. Sounds like a swear word. And it is. It's an insult. In Jesus' day, this word was used as an insult to target someone's intellect like calling someone a brainless or empty-headed imbecile. Right? You get the idea. You would use this colorful description, raka, to insult someone's intelligence, to attack, attack someone's self-worth and dignity. And the same is true of you fool. The word behind fool in the Greek is the word moros. That's where we get our word moron from. And that's not an uncommon insult today either, is it? In Jesus' day, moros was used to describe a person's mental abilities. However, it was also used to describe a person's moral character. And we use that insult in the same way today. If you refer to someone as moros, you were calling that person a stupid liar or or a cheater, a dummy. It was an insult on someone's morals as well as their character. And these two insults, raka and moros, express contempt for someone's intelligence, scorn for someone's heart, disdain for their character. And in Jesus' day, and also in in Eastern culture today, that, that was a real big problem calling someone a name like that because that was the society there was based on the honor system. Honor and shame. And to belittle someone in public was a very serious matter indeed. If a person was to lose their good reputation, it was about the same as dying. 
So what Jesus is saying here is that when you treat persons as nothing, by calling them names, you have in effect already murdered them. Today we call that character assassination. It's just another type of murder. And note that Jesus uses the word brother in this context. I say to you that everyone who hates his brother, isn't it true that we are most easily angry with those whom we know and love? It's hard to get angry and stay angry at people that you don't know. But if a friend or a relative does something that we don't like, oh boy, then look out, we're ready to blow our top. We tend to have little patience with the ones that we love. And yet Jesus' primary concern is our relationships with those who are our brothers and sisters in Christ. He cares about how we treat our spouse and our children and our siblings and our friends and our brothers and sisters in the church. In Colossians 3, Paul writes, Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Now this verse is directed to husbands, but it's just as applicable to wives and children and brothers and sisters in the congregation, in Christian homes and in the church, among people bought by the blood of Jesus Christ. There should be no place for guilt trips and fault-finding and name-calling or belittling sarcasm and playing the blame game. The Scriptures tell us that if we don't treat one another with love and respect, our prayers will be hindered. And Paul writes in 1 Timothy 2, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Before we are fit to pray, we must put away anger. If we are angry, our fellowship with God is adversely affected, and that means that there is then no power in our prayers. And all too often we we shrug off our anger or sarcasm by saying, well, I didn't really mean it that way. It was a joke. But it's not a joke to God, brothers and sisters. God considers this murder. So think about that the next time that you are angry at your spouse or your child, your parents, your brother or your sister. Don't think that your anger is not a big deal. It is a big deal. God gives us the sixth commandment for a good reason, congregation. He knows our hearts. He knew the hearts of His people when He met them at Mount Sinai as they were on their way to the Promised Land. He directed this commandment to people that He had just redeemed from Egypt. He directed these words to fathers and mothers and children in Israel, to their leaders and their noble men, and to Moses and Aaron. The Lord knows what kind of people He's dealing with. He knows our hearts. He created us. He knows us better than anyone. He created us for life. And He created man to give man a glorious home to live in. And He created him to live in perfect health, harmony and, and fellowship with all of his brothers and sisters. But how did man reward his Maker? What did he do in paradise? You know, we read the story of Cain and Abel, and Cain is often called the first murderer in the Bible, but that's not really true. Adam is in reality the first murderer 
And what did he do? Hardly had he been created along with his beautiful wife when he committed murder against God. And you might ask, well, how can a man murder God? Well, think back to the explanation of murder that Jesus gave in Matthew 5, raka and moros, contempt and insult, derision and scorn. When Adam and Eve ate of the fruit of which God said they should not eat, they called God a moron and a fool. And you probably cringe when you hear that, and so you should. We hardly dare to think that, much less say that, but it's true, because that's how, in reality, Adam and Eve committed murder against God. They kicked God out of their hearts, and they trampled on His love. They showed contempt for His command, and so they showed contempt for God Himself. And showing contempt for someone is the same as wishing that person out of your life, and that's murder. And that is how Adam declared God to be dead. And we can't imagine how awful this must have been for such a loving and gracious God to bear the contempt and hatred of His children, His children whom He had created in love, with whom He had established a relationship of love and intimacy as a father with his children. They violated that love. They trampled on it. And since that day, Adam and Eve have unleashed a string of murderous children. Boys and girls and men and women who continue to do what they did. And we have the evidence of that in Genesis 4 when Cain murdered his brother. And we have evidence of that in our own hearts in our own lives. And what did God do about that? Well, you know the answer. I'm sure you know the answer. Instead of destroying those murders, God promised them eternal life in His Son, Jesus Christ. Instead of doing away with those murderers, God sent His Son into a world full of murderers to take on the very flesh and blood of those murderers, and He even allowed His Son to be murdered so that murderers like us could live. Jesus Christ was despised and scorned. He was pierced for our contempt of God and crushed because we trampled on God's love. He was considered a fool and an imbecile by many of his contemporaries. Indeed, congregation, we have to confess that our sins also add to the contempt and scorn heaped on Jesus Christ. Our contempt for others, the dirty looks and the insults that we give, these sins add to the murder of Jesus Christ. But in spite of this, he was willing to accept the insults of Raka and Moros for our sake. And his willingness to accept death, to accept the scorn and the, and the contempt, not only shows us the way of life, but gives us the way of life, and frees us to love our neighbor as we should. And we might really wonder about that, especially when Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. We want to love the Lord Jesus, or we do love the Lord Jesus, and we want to follow Him. We want to live out of thankfulness for His sacrifice. But we have to admit that our righteousness does not exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. 
We do get angry, don't we? And we sometimes cherish grudges, which is hatred in our heart. And we do get bitter. And sometimes we have the desire of revenge. But then we may remember that the same Jesus who gave these commands not only gave his life as a ransom for our our sins, but also gives us his Holy Spirit. He did not just die and save us from sin so that we could go on sinning. Scripture says, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. So his death does more than just cover our sins. His death enables us to live a new life in him. His death has freed us from the bondage to sin and Satan, the one who was the murderer from the beginning. And so now we must not follow the ways of sin, but the ways of life. In that same chapter we read, If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. And that's why Paul can write in Romans chapter 6, Are we to continue in sin so that grace might abound? By no means. How can we who die to sin still live in it? And that's why the Apostle John can write as he does, Whoever abides in, in Jesus Christ ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. And that's why we confess in question and answer 107 that when God condemns envy, hatred, and anger, he commands us to love our neighbor as ourselves, to show patience and peace and gentleness and mercy and friendliness toward him and to protect him from harm as much as we can and to do good even to our enemies. We love God because God loves us. It's not possible to love God and not love the neighbor. Because when God, when his love lives in us, then we too will live out of that love. And we will show that in word and in deed. The congregation, it's not easy to follow in the love of Jesus Christ. It's not easy to put away anger. It's not easy to love others especially if they don't respond in kind. But we have to remember that the correct opinion of your neighbor starts with the correct opinion of yourself. Hatred and envy and contempt and scorn, that comes from a heart that says, I'm better than you. I'm smarter than you. I'm more righteous than you. The only way to quit being a murderer is to admit that this is not true. The only way to stop killing people, whether it's with looks or insults or any other way, is to consider others better than yourself. Only then can we truly begin to live according to the way of life that's demanded by this commandment. And yes, the sixth commandment teaches us that we are far from perfect. But examining ourselves in the light of this commandment, congregation, it's not meant to discourage us. It's not meant to drive us to the brink of despair because we know that that we fail so often. Instead, it drives us to pray for the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. God teaches us with this commandment that we are only saved by grace. And by His power, we receive the grace to keep the sixth commandment, oh, not perfectly, 
because we can never do that in this life. But of course, that's never an excuse to live out of sin, as if the salvation that Christ has obtained for us doesn't change anything in our lives. But by the power of Christ's Spirit, we can begin to put away anger and hatred and envy and instead show love to our neighbor and patience and peace and gentleness and mercy and kindness and to protect our neighbor from harm. You see, brothers and sisters, by faith, we not only accept the forgiveness of sins, but we also seek our lives outside of ourselves and in Jesus Christ. It's what we confess every time we go to the Lord's Supper table. And that's why when we truly examine ourselves in the light of the Sixth Commandment, we are driven to pray for the Spirit of Christ. In the power of Christ's Spirit, husbands and wives can stop drifting apart. Families can put aside petty bickering and we can build one another up. In the power of Jesus Christ, you can reconcile yourself with your brother and your sister. If Christ dwells in your heart, then His Spirit does and will change your life. That's a guarantee from God Himself because as Scripture says, in Him we are a new creation. Amen.